Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show, alive and kicking at newstalk.com, or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Cormac Ryan on how a health issue ended his GAA career, moving on from an eating disorder, and his unique take on health and his work as a physio. Cook Erica Drum returns with what's in season in July, and she has some left field suggestions for the barbecue. I'll also be joined by Brian Crook of Workplace Wellbeing on first of its kind research in Ireland on the impact wellness in the corporate world could make. So, what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, it was a bit of a transition week in this house, I feel. I, I waited to feel the elation of the end of the school year, but then just seemed to get up on Monday and make lunches and drop kids to summer camps. I mean, look, it was at a slower pace, I'm not going to lie, but duties still needed to be juggled nonetheless. And I did have a very busy weekend last weekend. I was out with friends. We went to Kaleidoscope Festival with the kids on Sunday, then home, quick turnaround, back out the door to Roisin Murphy. All great fun but needed a few early nights this week after that and felt I was in a bit of a recovery mode. But I do always talk about how important it is to get to connect with what you love, whether, I mean, this these are things that are important to me, my friends, my people, my family, new experiences, music. So whatever your thing is, get out and connect with it because sometimes we get so caught up in health and wellness with, you know, we need to eat well and we need to go to sleep and we need to work hard and we need, you know, and all these things are are part of it. But sometimes we just need to go out and have fun. So I did that, but I certainly needed to put in a few early nights in the bed with the book after that. And I have been putting probably a bit too much pressure on myself to get some work projects off the ground before my sister gets here next week with her family. But look, I've been working through the to-do list I really do feel at times that distracted brain from I'm I'm going to blame the phone um, and the way we live and the amount of apps we can have open at any one time. That's how my head feels at times. But I've been writing the lists and just crossing them off one step at a time. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com and let me know how you get through the lists. Now, I promised you cook Erica Drum and she joins me in studio now with what's in season for July. You're very welcome, Erica. Thank you, Claire. I'm very delighted to be here. You've been busy the last few weeks, haven't you? It's all kicked back off you. I see you're cooking dinners for people as well as all the kind of corporate work you do and the Taste of Dublin and the six yeah. o'clock show. You've been flying. Yeah, back at it now. I'm uh, I'd still on my babies a year, so I'm very much out of uh, mat leave, I suppose. Uh, host of the main stage of Taste of Dublin, which was just phenomenal. Four days of just brilliant chefs from all over the country being, you know, showed off on an amazing stage. Um, we got fab weather as well, which is great. And yeah, catering and doing little jobs and using all gorgeous seasonal food. So I'm delighted to be doing it. I'm always jealous when I see you're cooking dinner for somebody else. I'm like, why do I not get Eric around? Because it is a really beautiful thing to do, isn't it? To have somebody go to that level because then you're not stressed. Yeah, I so I only do probably about eight parties a year where they're bespoke parties. They'd be small events, not uh, large catering events where I cook and serve. So I'm in your home. Basically, I tell you, I leave your house the way I found it. So hopefully you have a clean kitchen when I get there. But but you know what I mean? I arrive with everything <laughs> and, and I leave with everything. You know, I serve the dessert and I scoot out the back door with the kitchen clean. So you, yeah, it's a great way to enjoy your party. It's kind of like going out for dinner to a restaurant, bringing your friends out to dinner, but actually keeping them at home. It's really memorable as well. It's a really fun thing to do. Um, but like I said, yeah, I only do a few of them. Very special occasions, to be honest. And what are some of the foods that are in season at the minute? Okay, so July, like, I don't know if you remember a few months ago, we were talking about the the gap, the hungry gap, which is when things are really low. July is abundant. You know, if you look at seasonal calendars, they nearly have to add an extra few pages. So we're looking at, we've still got strawberries and stuff that we talked about, rhubarb, all the berries are coming in. We've got... There's things like tay berries, gooseberries, all these grow in Ireland, cherries, stone fruits like nectarines, peaches. You'll see them in the supermarket. They may not necessarily have grown in Ireland. And I know I talk about Irish seasonal food and I am a big fan of it. But we also have to think of our neighbours. You know, these stone fruits will come from Spain, Italy, France. Like, And it's totally brilliant to be eating them. They still are seasonal. You're not eating them in January. They're crap. So uh, fruit-wise, that would be where we're at. And I absolutely adore it. And then when it comes to veggies, we've just so many. Think your greens. We've talked about spinach and chard. They're all still there. Um, 
And then you move into things like new potatoes. There's still beetroots. There's carrots, which you might think are slightly wintry, but they're coming in in the summer season, coming into salads and everything. They're absolutely delicious. Uh, courgettes are a great one. We're starting with tomatoes. I don't know if you're a tomato fan, Claire, are you? Yeah, and well, especially now because they actually taste different. Oh. When they're just that watery mush, I'm not really into it. But summer... Summer yeah. tomatoes, yes. Tomato would be a typical thing that we would eat all year, right? We were always looking for it. We, you know, put it in sauces, put it in salads and everything. You're so right, though. It tastes completely different this time of year. And that's because they are not force grown. They are growing in the natural sun. They're growing in their natural timing. And more than likely, at the moment, we can get Irish tomatoes, which are fabulous. For the next probably three months, we're going to be getting them, which is great. We're, they're, they're just starting now. But yeah, they taste fantastic. A bit of salt. And they're actually, if you ever tried a little bit of honey or something to eat, them sweet they're fab as well Yum and are you growing your own? I gr- I've grown now I cheated I bought um, what they call seedlings which is when you're you've got a small plant the starting of a plant so the, the um, local garden centre would have started the seed off um, and so I have a few different types of tomatoes and I'm really excited because for example Stella who who's one she is now eating the strawberries straight off the off the plant outside you know some people might give it give them a rinse I don't because they're fine and you didn't spray them with anything I didn't spray them with anything they're washed with the rain or whatever but just the idea that a child can see that happening that the fruit or the vegetable is coming from the earth like you know it's just so important it's bringing us back to to nature I suppose so yeah I'm growing a few cherry tomatoes they're still green now we're not there yet because I don't have a glass house but those that we're eating in the shops and stuff that are Irish would more than likely be in a glass house so they'll be still juicy and delicious Yeah I did give up our veg patch I just (laughs) it was a time where I just couldn't do it all work Ireland AM two small kids and I was just doing it by myself but courgettes was something that used to grow in abundance I mean I must have had about 64 courgettes through the season it was very hard to know what to do with them but they're a funny veg yeah and I think they're a little the thing of courgettes you look at them and you're like oh they're work aren't they you know they kind of you have you know you think you have to do something to them to make them delicious right and it's kind of you're right but look at them as sponges of flavour so whatever idea you know if you're like oh we're going to have um, you know Chinese f- fake away stir fry they are going to absorb all that gorgeous flavour um, when you talk about your veg patch I think when as the kids get older and start helping you that's a good a good time when you get you have more you're not minding them as much and they're minding the plants. Um, so I did a courgette, a kind of, I called it a lasagna bianca, which actually, if any Italians are listening, I'm really sorry. It's not a real thing. I made it up because it was the <laughs> summer and I wanted lasagna. Fine. And you can't, not that you can't eat regular lasagna, I'd eat it any day of the week. It's so delicious. But I wanted to make something that was green, but still creamy and cheesy and pasta sheets. So I did a lasagna bianca, which has courgette in it and still a creamy sauce. Another thing with courgette is ribbons. Get your peeler. Take off if you want the outer skin. I eat it as well. But if you're growing them in Ireland at home, usually without a greenhouse, the skins are going to be quite tough. So you could take off the outer skin or take off one piece of it and then use your peeler going down and you get strips, like ribbons of it, with little bits of the skin on either side. And they're great, full of fibre as well. But um, And toss that in a salad. They can be totally delicious eaten raw. So think of your French vinaigrette, you know, the vinegar, the mustard or whatever you're putting in there, that's going to absorb into the flavour. The flavour of that is going to absorb into your courgettes. Um, Another thing would be to grate them into hidden veg things for kids, like your pasta sauces, your tomato sauce. Grate your courgette, cook it through, bit of a blender. No one knows no different. So that's a bit of a use for them there. I will get back to growing veg. It was just a particular chapter and that was so sought after that yeah. veg patch so once you gave it up there was a wait list and I felt like it was time to pass on the baton oh, to somebody else yes. but the dream is to have a polytunnel of our oh, own yeah. um, and I will get there you just have to do it and I yeah. suppose you have to start small so what I've started with is the herb garden because Perfect. I think that's a good way to start yeah. getting yourself into. I hate opening packets of I know. herbs. It's really, it's really sad. Actually, that's a good point to talk about because the herbs are in basil, uh, mint. If anyone has mint, if you put it anywhere in your garden, it will usually grow uh, like crazily, but it will spread. Okay, so try and keep things in pots if you want. But um, when we're opening the packets, it's really sad because usually, uh, let's be honest, we leave half the packet in the fridge and they're soggy. Turns to mush. Yeah. 
Real quick one with that is just wrap them in tissue, kitchen paper. Give them a little rinse, wrap them in kitchen paper. Put them back in the bag so you know the label of whatever brand. But if you're buying those tubs, Claire, you know the the actual pots of basil, say, at the moment, basil's great. Divide it, cut it literally with a knife in four, right across the segment, and put those into four pots the same size with uh, with soil, and keep them indoors. Try and keep them in in the summer, in the light somewhere, um, because they're jam packed to give you loads of herbs. That's why they always die, you know. When we get a pack of uh, a tub of herbs, um, but that's also hard. All of it's hard. So yes, yeah, start easy, go slow. You know, um, things like the potato bags are really handy. Potatoes are in season at the moment. Well, coming into the new season. Of potatoes, baby potatoes, so delicious if you just cook them gently, some salt um, you know we have potato salads of course with loads of mayonnaise and stuff, I did a really nice Indian potato salad recently um, which had Indian spices in it but they're just so gorgeous but they can grow, like kids would just be fascinated at how potatoes grow, I don't know if you ever saw them, that the just that you have to build up the soil a little bit they're not a huge amount of work, you can buy a bag, a plastic potato bag or a a canvas potato bag and literally roll it up as the potato grows and give it a bit more soil. It's brilliant to watch. It is a great thing for kids to do. I just became like, you know, that children's story of the big red hen who just does everything by herself (laughs) and she takes in the wheat by herself and then she turns it to flour and then like when it's made into bread, finally everyone's like, oh, I'd love some of that. That's who I was with the veg patch. So yes, I'll need more people to come on board. Fennel is in season. Mm. I never really know what to do with that. Now, is that considered... Um, a veg or a herb? Oh, veg. So the the bulb is the veg and you can get the fronds of fennel which are totally edible as well. But dill is kind of the same family but a different, um, is is the herb variety I suppose. Um, But fennel I think is another tough one because people don't really know what to do. It is really hard. You can can eat it raw, you can eat it cooked. It tastes a little bit um, aniseed-y, licorice-y. but it's truly fab. And I've lately discovered lashing. I was being lazy one night. I had loads of veg um, a few months ago and I just literally cut them all in half. Loads of lovely olive oil, salt and vinegar and onto the um, barbecue. It's actually last summer now that I think of it. Um, because I had the venal bulb. And when I ate it afterwards, I really charred them and let them cook for ages. It was so delicious. So something like that, simply grilled on the barbecue fennel is fab but also shaved if you ever think of your um, square um, grater at home or your triangle grater on one side of it is a little just a plain blade if you rub the uh, fennel up and down that or use a knife whatever you'd like to thinner kind of slices vinegar again will kind of cook it or acid from lemon or something will will make it a little bit softer but it's fab in a salad with something like um orange segments or flaked almonds or something goes really well with it there so I absolutely adore fennel I have a deadly recipe that so many people so many people have cooked and come back to me on it's a fennel and sausage rigatoni you have to make this Claire I swear it is so delicious there's vodka in it I know it sounds mad you don't have to put it in Um, it's a tomato and mascarpone base so it's kind of a collab of two two recipes a fennel and sausage recipe and a tomato vodka sauce recipe um, from Italy but they're it's really really delicious I have made a sausage pasta with fennel seeds through it yes. and they go really well yes. together so I will give that one a go Thank and you. report back before <laughs> I let you go can we touch on the barbecue because I know the weather has gone a bit iffy this week but you know it will be back and mm. we were basking in the sunlight and I know everybody was taking their barbecues out mm. I'm a little bit scared of the barbecue. It's either like burnt meat or undercooked on the inside. I never really know what to do with my barbecue. So where do you stand on coal versus gas and what are some of the best things for us to cook and how? Okay, great questions. So firstly, I think barbecue should be all year round. We all have brollies in the house and um, personally, I love getting the kit moving the kitchen outside a little bit so it's out of my space like the the mother hen or whatever you know it's all going on in the kitchen <laughs> so if he goes out to do a bit of barbecuing in the middle of February I'm delighted you know so um, when it comes to gas and coal gas is a lot easier to manage you know we can we can turn it up we can turn it down we can see where the flames are we can whereas coal's a little bit more difficult I would say with coal a lot of practice so you want the flame to die down um, some parts are going to be a lot hotter you can start in the hot part you can finish you know leave things on the edges to keep 
cooking while you're doing something else where you want to seal it in. Think of a hot pan. You're sealing something and then cooking it slowly. Um, but practice. I just think getting out there, getting your, you know, simple things. Like I said, cut your courgette in the middle. Give it a bit of a, a rub with oil or your chicken breast or whatever and start going at it and just keep trying. Try different um, areas of the barbecue, different temperatures, lid down, lid up, you know, if you want to um, cook something further in the inside. But don't be afraid. I think that's like all of us, we're afraid of new things. And if we're, the barbecue's only coming out every, mo- every year for two months, we forget by September then coming to next June, we forget, oh, sugar, how do you use this again? Just don't be afraid. And another thing, cleaning it. I always... Um, blast it on if I haven't had it on for ages really hot and let the nearly anything that's dirty on it to kind of char and then scrape it down with the wire brush before I'd start cooking um, I love using fruit on the barbecue like at the moment the nectarines the peaches they're so gorgeous Claire and they go if you can get gorgeous tomatoes like we said with the buffalo mozzarella and do a salad or something like that on the barbecue you can also do fruit for dessert like don't forget bananas keep them in there do a little slit down the middle, a few pieces of chocolate wrapped up back onto the barbecue. Kids love them. Yum. I might just have to have you around. Be, be one of those eight <laughs> sessions you do where you come around and just do it all for me. Where can people find you? Um, my Instagram is mainly where I'm at. I'm, I'm gathering myself. So it's Erica Drum, i.e. Erica Drum, i.e. on Instagram. And I have those few recipes. I'm going to pin them down for you. Fantastic. Erica Drum, thank you so much. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Now, Brian Crook is the founder of Workplace Wellbeing. He arranges events and education programmes. He and Dr. Jennifer Hines have just completed Irish research on the subject of workplace wellness. And he joins me in studio now. Well, you're very welcome back, Brian. You did come on the show for Workplace Wellbeing Day. Not the last one gone, the one before. Um, So don't leave it so long next time. Okay. (laughs) Tell me a bit about this research. Sure, and, and thanks for the invitation back, uh, Claire. So, yeah, so very excited about this research. So, as you mentioned, it's a collaboration with Dr. Jennifer Hines. And Jenny is the real uh, brains of the operation from an academic perspective and a data analysis perspective. So, shout out to Jenny. Uh, Jenny and I first met uh, when we were del- co-delivering the postgrad in workplace wellness at Trinity. Um, that continues to go from strength to strength. Uh, Jenny's now in Berlin International University, um, but we stayed in touch and we collaborated on this last year and we were interested in exploring what are the drivers of engagement and disengagement when it comes to well-being programmes in Irish organisations. Because I, mean, I see that frequently in, in the Workplace Wellbeing Ireland community, uh, the well-being leaders talking about not being able to get people engaged, involved in their programs. So we wanted to explore why that is, what are the barriers and maybe what can organisations do to bolster engagement and to increase engagement in these programs. And that's so interesting to me. It's probably because I'm in this health and wellness bubble that I think, why wouldn't you want to go along and, and hear some inspiring stories or get some insights on, on how you can feel better within yourself? But some people just aren't engaged. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's been a huge challenge for leaders, uh, a puzzling challenge for leaders for years as to, as to why this is the case. And there are numerous reasons and and we've identified quite a few, some surprising, maybe some not so surprising in the research. Uh, And and I should say the research, we did take two phases, uh, phase one being a detailed survey. Uh, Phase two, then we conducted semi-structured interviews with leaders, uh, with junior associates as well, from a broad mix of industries, so different professions represented as well. We wanted to get that flavour, you know, not just from one particular industry, if you like, of what is going on and what are those barriers and what can we do to overcome them. So what are some of them that kept cropping up? So I will say, first of all, outside of the the engagement piece, some of the interesting findings from the research were that I think, and this will come as no surprise, that um, the association between organisation size and the likelihood of offering a wellbeing initiative, that was found to be statistically significant. So, for example, 90% of organisations with 50 to 249 employees and 92% of organisations with over 250 employees, they all they offered wellbeing programmes or in- initiatives. And then on the flip side of that, 75% of organisations with less than 10 employees and 71% of organisations with between, let's say, 11 to 49 employees, they had no programme 
or initiative respectively. So the, you know, the, the organisation size that you work in, that's going to be significant. Obviously, the, the larger the organisation, the more likely they're, they're offering something. And when you say wellbeing initiative, you know, does that mean a kind of a workplace wellbeing day or does that also encompass that your health insurance is paid through work? I mean, how do you define what yeah. an initiative is? And we, we called out a few, we gave, we gave examples in, in the survey and a wellbeing initiative or intervention, it could be anything from, let's say, a one-off talk or a class right the way up to an EAP program, an employee assistance program, or a flexible working policy, a detailed policy, and anything in between. So anything that promotes and supports healthy behaviours in the workplace. That's how we would define an, in- an initiative or an intervention. So why are some people not interested? Yeah, so what came out, maybe unsurprising again, uh, number one on this list was workload. So workload was the main reason people were not engaging uh, with, let's say, the well-being initiatives that were being run in these organisations. If it's going to take them away from their work and their desk, they're not interested. I- exactly. And but rela- very much related to that was this idea which kept cropping up was around ability to attend. So w- certainly workload was in there in that, but also the perception of your time or your busyness is that you're, I'm too busy to attend that. But then also, very interestingly, was around the culture in the organisation, the perception of whether it's acceptable or not to attend this event which is taking place. Uh, Is it at lunchtime? Is it during the working day? Uh, Does my leader support this? Is my leader attending, for example? Is my direct line manager attending? Is the leadership team attending? So ability to attend or the perception of, am I allowed to attend this? This is that was really, really significant in the findings. And another stuff we found then related to that, I mean, if you were not attending, some kind of negative impacts we found around uh, inability to attend might lead to a stunt in personal growth. You know, you're not developing, you know, you're not in, in control of your own working day, let's say, and time. Uh, long hours also due to workload could lead to disconnection problems, which could then filter down to uh, Im- impacting personal relationships outside of work and also life satisfaction. It's really interesting, isn't it? I'm like, I don't want to be doing you out of a job, but does this play <laughs> into the idea that if people want to go to a wellness event, that they'll do it in their own time, that it shouldn't be blended in the workplace? What are the benefits of trying to do it within the working day? Well, I mean, if you think about it, uh, I think it's at 3.8% the unemployment rate at the moment. An awful lot of people in the country at work. We also spend, you know, a huge amount of our time, of our life at work. It's an ideal place to provide health promoting initiatives, interventions to try and persuade people to adopt new habits. So it is, it is a prime location for well-being interventions. So as we see, in, as we say in the research, it really should be supported and adopted a lot more by organisations. I mean, what jumped out for me there was with workload. Is that just not a massive red flag that you really do need to go to a wellness initiative <laughs> if you feel like you're too busy to take an hour out of your day to invest in yourself and, and how you feel and, and your health? That would be what would scream to me. But I took part in, I won't name the company, but one of the biggest communications company and they had a, a workplace well-being event. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a, a, an all day event and the leaders were there. It was very much focused on mental health and, you know, please reach out. And, you know, we're a very open organisation. We want you to talk. This is how we're handling it. These are all the things we have in place. I thought it was Amazing, And they had all different things that people could try. There was drumming going on. There was yoga. There was a whole load of different talks happening. Um, and there was a handful of people there. Like really? this was a massive, massive mm-hmm. building. And we were in a small room and I'd say there were 50 people there, 60 people there. Yeah. And, and that just really interested me. Now, I think as well, the hybrid working is, is going to impact these things that people might feel I'm working from home, I'm happy in what I'm doing there. I'm not going to come all the way into the office for something like that. But we need yeah. that mindset shift, don't we? That it's investing time in yourself to work harder, to work better, to work smarter because you're understanding yourself and your health better. Big time, yeah. And and that came up in the research as well, actually. Um, people, well, communication actually was, was huge as well and people feeling like they weren't being communicated with 
uh, properly about these initiatives or they were unaware of a lot of what was happening. So that was really important, the importance of strategic communications from the organisation. And a big challenge around wellbeing interventions and initiatives is trying to make it as as personalised as possible, uh, which is very difficult when you have a big organisation. But people in the feedback, in the semi-structured interviews, people saying, I don't attend this because it doesn't suit me where I am in my life at this moment in time. That was something that came up quite often as well. Um, Specific interventions tailored for me, my priorities, my life stage, that came up uh, quite often. So it is a challenge for organisations to try and get that right. Um, But one thing again, another, another barrier that emerged was if employees felt like the what was being hosted or what was being organised or it wasn't real, it wasn't a genuine effort. There, was, there wasn't genuine meaning behind it from the organisation. They were uh, more likely to view that negatively and a lot less likely to engage with it. Yeah, and I, I find that interesting. Have you noticed different trends since you set up workplace wellbeing mm-hmm. before, you know, somebody coming in, doing an inspiring talk and leaving was what was in now? Mm-hmm. People are looking for something more tangible, aren't they, with yeah. their wellness spend that they're going to have. They want something tangible. They're going to want results. They're going to want to know that there are real take-homes for people that are going to influence behaviour change. That's a big ask, I think, of a, a wellness initiative. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, there's so much happening in the space at the moment, though. It's it's actually a really, really exciting time. And if you think about it, the last just in the last two and a half years alone, let's say from a policy perspective, we've had the right to disconnect We've had uh, the Work-Life Balance Act, which very recently came into, into law. That includes the right to request remote working. Healthy Ireland launched their Healthy Workplace Framework. That's gathering momentum. So that's, that's all moving things in, 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 in one direction. You know, it's a bit like I've heard it described as the health and safety industry about 30 years ago. The initial uh, pieces of legislation arriving... Um, a lot of people and organisations saying, you know, I'm not wearing that hard hat. I'm not wearing those shoes on that side, etc. Uh, there was a few early adopters, though. So that's exactly how I would describe it now. A few organisations leading by example, the early adopters, if you like, uh, where they're backing that up with dedicated resources, a full-time well-being, health and well-being leader. This is something, one of our, our concluding recommendations in the report. Do you have a dedicated uh, person in this role? Do you have a dedicated team? of well-being champions, that was shown to be statistically significant in driving engagement in your in your uh, programmes. And then the, and the other point then is that um, education. If these roles are being created, uh, we need uh, to be educating people uh, in this area. And within the last five years, we've gone from zero programmes to three. Uh, the postgrad at Trinity that I'm privileged to be involved with, NUIG have a level nine programme as well. And most recently then the TU of the Shannon have a well-being and leadership program then as well. So three level nine postgrads in this area, if you like, supporting and educating people within organisations to become that leader, to become that health and well-being leader in an organisation and to drive this forward. And I've come to many of your events and it, it becomes like a, a, a networking event. I always really get a lot out <laughs> of them. And I've, I've met some of those people in those roles that mm. you've either had in your panel or there, you know, in the audience. And it's very interesting. There was one there from one of the big corporations and there was a lot of um, negative press going on at the time. And like his role was looking after the call centres and making sure mm-hmm. that they were managing their stress. But he was also organising wellness events and, you know, uh, the the employees getting out to, to move on a regular basis and socialising together and connection and all of that. And it, it is such a varied role yeah. um, that adapts and flows and, and works obviously alongside HR. But when you really hear it, when it's dedicated, what it brings to an organisation, you can really understand why it's beginning to come out as something that's so important. What will happen with this research now? Yeah, well, I mean, our, our hope, first of all, is that it's, it's shared widely. I mean, we have identified in this and there's, there's a lot more to the research than we've had time to cover. So I'd, I'd encourage everyone to, to, we can include a link to go and read the research. Um, like we've included evidence-based recommendations about how companies, how the wellbeing leaders can go about driving this engagement in, in their organisations. So I hope that it's shared uh, far and wide. Um, we, we're really dipping our toe in the water from a research perspective here. So Jenny and I have already had some great conversations about you know where to next 
what is the next piece of research that this this leads to and I'd encourage any other researchers out there as well to, to look at this to learn from it and to maybe use it as a guide for their own research as well and I'd be happy to talk to anybody about that as well because we have some we have some interesting ideas on, on where to take this next because to invest in well-being within your workplace has such a knock-on effect on everything from obviously we've touched on sort of personal development and long-term health but we're talking about economic benefits we want people who are healthy and well and I hate to reduce people to robots but I think Mm -hmm. sometimes that's where you get people on board when you think about what we spend on healthcare you know this is just a way more positive way of you know getting in there early Big time. This is about we're preventing illnesses before they occur. Uh, this over time will lead to a reduction in healthcare costs, healthcare costs of which are, are, are going up all the time, it seems. Um, you know, we're getting older, we're living longer, we're, more and more people are at work. There is no better you know, social setting or setting for uh, these kind of interventions. So if we can get this right, and it's still, it is still in the very early stages of this in its infancy. And a lot of the research that we uh, use on the, on the postgrad is, is within the last 10 years, almost all of it. Uh, this is very recent. This is exciting times. This is Irish research that we have here. Healthy Ireland have some. Uh, Jane Burke at UCC had some interesting uh, mental health research very recently. But there's very, very little Irish research out there. So this is, it's a, such an exciting time in this space. You know, we're all learning, but we're all growing as well. And it's a massive opportunity for those early adopters, as I said earlier, those companies that are really taking this seriously to make a, a strategic difference in their organisation. No question. Yeah, it's so interesting. I was asked recently to take part in a, a discussion about wellness being a con. And I always wonder why we pit health and and, and wellness against each other, that like one is grounded in science and medicine Mm -hmm. and the other is a bit woo woo and and it's kind of eye roll or, you know, are they rolling out the yoga mats again? Uh It's it's all connected and it's all about, you know, living well. Um, And and I don't think that's to be scoffed at or eye rolled at. Absolutely not. And there's something there for everybody. And, And what one program in one organization looks like is going to look very different than another organization. Again, back to the research, key findings, listen to your people, engage with your people. What are they asking you for? What, where are they at, you know, the life stage? What kind of uh, specific interventions are, are, they, are they interested in and more likely to engage with? That's how you increase engagement and that's how you make a real difference in their lives then as well. Where can people find you with the research? If you go to workwellireland.ie, I mean, sign up to the newsletter there. I think it's click join the community. You'll get the uh, the weekly newsletter, Work Well Weekly. Uh, I include regular links to that research, to other research then as well. So that's uh, workwellireland.ie. Brian Crook, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Claire. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Now, Cormac Ryan was a promising hurler playing for Dublin Miners and getting to the All-Ireland final when a heart issue ended his career. He went on to cycle, among other things, 6,000 kilometres through Athens for charity and qualified as a physio. He took part in RTE's 2021 documentary Unspoken, looking at men and their experience of eating disorders, a chapter he says he's ready to move on from. And he joins me in studio now. Well, you're very welcome, Cormac. How are we? Very good. And you? Good, good. Very happy to be here. Tell us then a bit about that time and that heart defect being discovered. Yeah, it's, it's, it seems like a lifetime away now. It was 11 years ago. So um, I was 18, was on top of the world, playing hurling with Dublin, kind of childhood fairy tale type stuff. These are all the things you dream of. Um, and then, yeah, life changed pretty quickly within a few months. Um, started getting episodes of dizzy spells, breathlessness, chest pain, Fainted on the pitch a few times. Um, long story short, ended up in Bowman for two weeks. Picked up what was a previously undetected heart condition. Um, got a pacemaker implanted. Was kind of told, give up contact sports. You probably won't be too fit or athletic. Start reconsidering how you're doing things. So yeah, like it was, my world was turned upside down at 18, to be honest. And I have a 12 year old son who's like sport mad. Um, you know, most of our week is taken up with training and matches. So it's it's a huge thing to remove from your life. How did your head manage all of this? Oh, it didn't. My head didn't manage it. Like I was, I was kind of a bit of a nerd in school. And then my only sort of cool outlet was, was sports. I wasn't most sociable. I wasn't out with the lads, hanging around with the corresponding age group of girls. Like I was very much either at home, in the books, in school or out on the hurling field. 
So like that was my identity. So when I, that got taken away, mentally really, really struggled. Um, yeah, became quite depressed, um, became quite anxious. Like looking back now, it was inevitable. Of course I was at the time. I didn't really know what was happening though as my mood was dropping. Um, and yeah, just kind of stopped looking after myself, put on a lot of weight and staying in bed and not showing up for my summer job sometimes. And yeah, just wasn't really in a good headspace. But I suppose in hindsight now, what else could you have expected to happen? Yeah, no, that's huge. And you need a time to to process that and, and, and find a way. And, and in, in some ways, it's it's a grieving for the life you were going to have because you weren't going to have that anymore. You weren't going to have something you loved anymore. A pathway you thought was opening up to you was closed. So that takes time. When did the fog begin to lift? Uh, probably took a few years, to be honest. Um, and it was really just time, actually. To, like I did a bit of counselling and learned how to talk about it and be more open about how I was feeling. But to be honest, something like that just took time. And time was the great healer. Probably about three, four years later, I started to feel kind of back to myself. Whereas, and, and now all these years later, I'm, I'm grand with it. It keeps me well, it keeps me safe. But um, yeah, it took time. And I gradually then I started exploring new things. Like, you know, I started to move away from the guy and kind of found the bike and that opened a whole kind of other kind of avenue of things that I never thought I'd go down and it's brought me to places that I never thought I'd be so like I probably wouldn't change it despite the initial trauma Yeah because they sort of said you have to be careful with the, your levels of fitness but you really have taken on some massive challenges on that bike haven't you but nothing that would put you in danger I'm not suggesting that but you know you've gone from that guy who stayed in bed Yeah no like my, my cardiologist has cleared it all <laughs> my cardiologist cleared everything I did but yeah like we I went around Ireland twice on the bike, once when I was 19, once when I was 21, and then went from Ackle to Athens the whole way across Europe over two months. And then last summer I went across the US on my own um, from San Francisco to New York, which was just wild. Um, so no, everything's been cleared, but like you just don't know what life is going to bring or what way life will turn out. And it it's cliched and it's a bit kind of, pie in the sky stuff but it definitely has given me that belief that kind of like if all that good and all that money for charity can come from that kind of initial trauma well then do you know what a lot of the time maybe things are meant to happen or even if they're not meant to happen that you can get some good from it and make a positive out of what's seemingly a negative situation so not like I wouldn't change it And what is life with a pacemaker like does it affect your day to day is there an annual checkup? Get checked up every year. Um, my battery is about to run out. I only have about six months left in it, so that's going to have to be changed soon, which will be a smallish procedure. Day to day, not really. I'm going to the airport this afternoon. It's a bit of a nuisance in the airport, um, particularly in uh, in certain parts of the world where they wouldn't have seen too many of them. But like, no, stay away from magnets. Don't go too near metal detectors. Probably need to mind myself a bit more. I'm probably not great at that in terms of just rest and stuff, but... For the most part, no. I'm I'm in better health now than I was before I got it in. So thankfully, there's been no real complications. And I mentioned the RTE documentary, Unspoken, that you took part in. And you and I first met mm. at an eating disorder awareness event that we were both at. And I was really blown away by your story. And I know after we spoke, you know, you said, I'm kind of ready to stop speaking about that. And I and I do think that's an important thing we should get to because it's a very important part of the the healing journey, isn't it? That it stops defining you and being a massive part of of who you are. But I do also think you've such an important message to share because that's why it was called Unspoken because not many men speak about it. Yeah, and, and it is like, and I suppose that's why I did the documentary. Like I was in the thick of eating disorder treatment when when I took part in that documentary like and it was absolutely wild and insane that I was going into Lois Bridges in the middle of treatment learn getting my diagnosis and there was a camera crew following me it was just the way it all unfolded was bizarre um and it is like 2 years later now and thankfully I'm in terms of that stuff I'm in a really really good and healthy place and I nourish myself well and I I can't really figure what what sort of headspace I was in back then that I would go so far as to starve myself. But equally, as you said, you you, you don't want to be defined by just being the bloke who had the eating disorder. Um, so it's a fine line. I still think it's really important to talk about it. And so 
Um, I kind of pick and choose, to be honest. Like, I kind of pick and choose. Uh, it depends on the vibe of the podcast or the vibe of the interview. And uh, if it kind of aligns with my values, or um, I'll do it and I'll still talk about it. But I'm, I'm trying to kind of maybe do it a little bit less often. I think it's, as as you know, like we, none of us want to be defined by any one thing. We're just humans. We're not defined by our jobs or our illnesses or our experiences. Really, we're just ourselves. So, um, yeah, trying to balance that, which is tricky, but I'm getting a better handle of it now. Something you did say that really stuck out for me when we talked about your experience was how, um, and I know it was complex and there were a whole load of things going on, but that in a way it seemed to have been influenced by the the clean eating. You gave an example of your mum saying, surely you can have more. And you were like, this is turkey burgers and and broccoli and and a little bit of rice. There's great nutrients here. Mm. And like even something in me was like, he's right, because that's the messaging we're given, particularly in a lot of the highly toxic diet culture, wellness talk, but this clean you know, into your Tupperware, all the big bodybuilders mm. are doing it. This is what you have to do. And that's somehow in trying to follow that, it all just got too much. Yeah, and that's, that's I'm, a, I'm an example of that story. Like, I I, I suppose my initial willingness or, or kind of wish to lose weight was kind of based around comments that were made to me that probably shouldn't have been. Um, but after that, in terms of, I kind of just dipped into diet culture and that whole kind of clean eating Tracking your cows, get your steps up, um, weigh your food, track your protein, all that stuff, healthy eating. Um, I fell into that. And that was the first kind of step into what became, over a period of time admittedly, and obviously it won't happen for everyone, but for me, that healthy eating buzz, that diet culture ultimately led to a pretty severe distressing eating disorder. To the point where I was so mentally unwell that I didn't see a way out of it. And, you know, and I'm not here, like, people will want to better themselves in different ways and you'll always get, and I'm not here to tell anyone, look, if you don't want, like, don't you dare drop the drop the dress size or don't you dare better yourself and get a bit healthier at all. I'd never be that kind of advocate, which sometimes from the eating disorder side, it can get that extreme. I, I kind of try and live in the grey on this. Um, but I'd always just kind of advise, just, just be wear, wary of it. And if you find that you're 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 doing the healthy eating, and yes, you might be feeling better or feeling better in yourself and confidence stuff, which is is great for everyone's mental well being. Also, be aware of the flip side. If if you're starting to get a bit of anxiety when someone offers you a cup of tea and a slice of cake in the house, or if you're starting to get a bit obsessive about my fitness pal, or you're starting to get a bit obsessive, I have to get that session in. I have to get those steps in. That's when you start treading the dangerous line, you know, and I have enough sense to know that not everyone who goes on a goes on a diet or, or tries to pattern themselves will end up with an eating disorder. But I also know that there's enough evidence there to say that it can be a, a dangerous road to go down and that ultimately we probably need to try and ditch that diet culture thing. Um, but yeah, it was, I am the classic example of healthy eating turkey burgers and, and rice and broccoli and, and look at where it led me to the point where I just try and starve myself for days. Um, so yeah, it's just something to, to be aware of. Yeah. And in your treatment, you mentioned Lowe's Bridges there. It's a residential centre here in Dublin. And you are sort of an outpatient of, of sorts, which I think is, is is interesting. For some people, it really helps them to just get away from everything and, and get the help and support they need. But for you, being able to come and go and give real life, in inverted commas, a go, the weekends, the food situations and the social situations that crop up a go while still in treatment, you found very positive. Yeah. No, no the only re- I was, for the record, I was advised by the consultant psychiatrist and the clinical psychiatrist, the clinical psychologist and the team in Lois Bridges to come in as a resident. Um, I suppose I was having such great difficulty accepting the fact that I was this 28-year-old, six-foot-two cyclist gap player that had an eating disorder. Like, I, I just wasn't accepting of that and I couldn't come to terms with it that I was hell-bent on probably being a bit defiant and being a bit in denial. And I think it got to the point where they were like, we mightn't get this fella in at all. So they kind of met me halfway and they said, right, come in at eight in the morning, stay till eight in the evening and you can go home then or have your hour or two in the evening and you can be out at weekends. Um, ultimately, as you said, it actually gave me the perfect balance. Even the consultant ended up saying, you know what, it was probably the right thing for you because sometimes when you go into those re- into that environment and you're taken out of normal life for eight weeks, 12 weeks, 
you become a small bit institutionalized in a way and you kind of forget how daily life works or that you forget that well actually no dinner mightn't be able to be a half life today and your evening snack mightn't be able to be a half seven because life might happen and it could be half six and half nine and some people might have a meltdown with that and um, so I was lucky that I was able to mix the two I had my safe space in Lois Bridges from Monday to Friday from eight to eight and then I also had the challenging weekends so yeah for me it worked out really well um, and it was just a really nice balance but if I think at, at the very start when I did my assessment, if they could have, well, they tried to bring me in as a resident and in hindsight, maybe I should have, but um, no, thank, yeah. thankfully it worked out all right. And obviously I'm saying that as a, you know, a non-medical expert. Mm. Um, I'm just think it's, it's, it's definitely part of the conversation. It's an interesting observation, and no doubt. There is somebody else who has come on the show here. Um, there are three people trying to open Kiri Farm, it'll be called. Mm. And it's for people coming out of mental health treatment so that they have a, a middle ground somewhere where they can have community, have a job, you know, be mixing with real life, normal life before going back. Um, Absolutely. Because it's it's very hard to go from being almost institutionalised even for a short space of time back to real life and, and, and try and manage all that. And sometimes that transition back, that transition, as you say, can be such a big, there can be such a big gap. And even to this day, I'm two years after leaving eating disorder treatment, I'm still not back working full time. I was spent, before I came into you here, I was with my psychologist for an hour this morning. And I'm really well on a macro level. But on a micro level, there's still certain things I really need to mind and just keep an eye on. So I don't work full time. And I still check in with my psychologist when I feel I need to. Because ultimately, yes, I'm really well. But if I could get that bad to the point where my brain was so rewired that I was like, you cannot eat food today. You have to try and starve yourself for the next three days. If it can get that bad that quickly, well then it's just, for me at this stage, it's more important to, to stay on top of it and try and, and try and manage that. And I think I'm lucky that I'm able to do that, say with part-time work, etc. Um, but I think if we can get to a stage where those services are there, I don't think, I think a lot of the time with people, it's it's not necessarily the, the initial help that's the issue or if they go in somewhere, it's, it's they get out and then, then life happens again and the, the support team isn't there 24-7 and how do we manage that and how do we keep people well? I think that's where we're lacking big time. Yeah, and is it accessible for everybody to get a psychologist once a week? For some people it isn't and it oh. just isn't fair. Tell me a bit about your work because it's quite special. I mentioned you're a physio. Tell me mm. about the work you do. Yeah, so I'm a physiotherapist in, a, in an organisation called On Sale Foundation. So um, On Sale Foundation was set up by a guy called Reinhard Shaler um, after his son, Porik, um, had an accident on his on his J1 in Cape Cod about 10 years ago. Um, and Porik sustained a, a severe acquired brain injury. Um, so On Sale Foundation was basically set up to to give people like Porik, and we now have 28 clients, access to physiotherapy, occupational therapy, just somewhere to go and be well and stay well and healthy. Because a lot of the time what would have happened, Claire, is people who sustained such profound injuries um, would end up in nursing homes. Um, and there's an awful lot of young people in this country, about 1,300 in nursing homes at the moment with acquired brain injuries or other neurological conditions. So we're working with people who are have exceptionally high needs and have pretty severe and profound disabilities but we try and get them up, get them out of their wheelchairs, walk with them, move with them, exercise. And it's pretty eye-opening. Uh, it's very humbling. It really makes you realise how lucky you are because a lot of them are young. They're the same age as, as me or you. They're all in their 20s, 30s, 40s and they've had life-changing accidents and, and, and illnesses. Um, but amazingly inspiring people, um, their ability to keep their head up and stay positive in, in, in what are the most tragic of circumstances. And, and there are a group of people that our healthcare system is failing and has failed up until this foundation was set up. The, the, the answer for most of these people um, when they initially left hospital and the advice they were given was go to a nursing home. And that's just wrong. On a human rights level, that's wrong. Go to a nursing home and, and wilt away until, until a, a, a secondary complication catches up with you. So we try and get them up, as I say, get them out of their chairs, keep them as well as possible. Um, and thankfully, majority of our clients aren't in nursing homes. They're at home with their families. They come into us a few times a week and we try and have a bit of fun and keep things as light as we can. But um, yeah, it's it's very rewarding work, challenging. Um, some days are tough, but, but I really can't speak highly enough of the place and, and the work they're doing there. 
And you mentioned the way you live. That's been quite a conscious choice that mm. you're not burning yourself out working 24-7, that you work part-time so that you have enough time in your life to do the things that you want to do. Yeah, I just... Maybe it's maybe it's the fact that I had to take a year out and, and sort the eating disorder or the pacemaker or, or whatever. I just... <laughs> I see so many people and we work so hard 40, 50 hours a week to earn all this money and then we've no time to do the things we love and we've no real time to use the money on things we love and then we end up working so hard that we forget to look after our health and our mind and then all we do with the money we've earned is spend it on looking after our health and I just yeah I don't know I just think there's more to life like many of my friends have bought houses in the past year and some of them have kids on the way and I spent the past two years cycling across continents and I'm you know, hoping to see more of the world in the next year or two as well. I look, there's no right or wrong, but I just think that I just think that it's very easy in modern day Ireland to get caught up in career, mortgage, job, push, push, push. When there's a whole other world out there for us to see, and there's a, just because everyone is living a certain way doesn't mean we all have to live a certain way. Yeah, I love that. And you said a, a word at the start, which I have become really attached to, and it's 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 nourish that you nourish yourself and it's mind, body and soul. Yeah. It's not just about food when it comes to nourishment and it sounds like that's what you're doing. Yeah, I try and like I'm not I'm not an expert as I said. Like I was with my psychologist this morning because something came up in the past couple of weeks where I just wasn't quite happy with it and it was it was it was a source of anxiety so I went and tried and deal with it. But even that I consider nourishment the fact that I can just go and try and nip it in the bud. But like I'm not I'm not the perfect picture of mind, body and soul, but I try as best I can to not get kind of pulled back into the rat race or, or kind of what society kind of the way society tells us to live I, I, I try and at least create and kind of set aside and protect time for my own well-being and it's kept me well so far so I'm hoping it'll keep me well in the long run Yeah I took a screen grab actually of something you shared on um, your 30th birthday did somebody give you the, this framed picture and it says I need glasses. You cannot swim for New Horizons. <laughs> yes, go ahead. You tell me it. Tell me the quote that you shared. Did you, somebody give you that? My sister got me that gift um, for my 30th birthday. So it's a, it's a, kind of like a mountain and it's made up of like mini mountains and each little mini mountain represents a state that I cycled across in the US. And then, oh. and then down the bottom, it's a quote that says, you cannot swim for New Horizons until you have courage to lose sight of the shore. And I, that quote, when I was cycling across America on my own last summer, um, and I remember landing in San Francisco airport and realising I had to cycle a bike to New York and just thinking, what have I let myself in for? I just kept repeating myself for that. And it basically means you cannot achieve new things or or kind of reach things that you might dream of or, or, or kind of make your dreams come to fruition without having the courage to go after them first. Um, so yeah, Orla, my very dear sister who I'm very close to got me that so it's uh, yeah it's up on the wall at home I love that um, and I, I think you're a very special person yourself um, thank you so much for coming on people can follow you on Instagram he's at Cormac Ryan with a double N because somebody else had the audacity to take that one Cormac Ryan thank you so much cheers Claire so that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen, to Simon Keane and Hugo De Silva-Scott who was on sound. And thanks to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.